This is Comic Shadowguns, episode 868, Comic Talk Spotlight on X-Force, volume 1. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 868. It's our uh, Comic Talk Spotlight on X-Force, Volume 1, as part of the Dawn of X era. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, joined once again by Nathan Strzok and Paul Skouras. Introduce yourself, gentlemen. Hi. <laughs> Hello. I am Paul. That is Nate. <laughs> See, that? I, it's worth it just for that, because I feel like I keep you guys on your toes, because you never know what kind of intro I'm going to throw at you. Well, imagine that at a gathering. Imagine people arriving at your home and saying, like, introduce yourselves, gentlemen, and there's just two people looking back and forth at each other, and you're like, uh, okay. Uh, you should just introduce us, but we'll do it again. Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what that's what's happening. Uh, if, you've, uh, is this, if this is the first time you've joined us for one of our Donovex uh, recaps, this is, I guess, the fourth one that we've done so far. Uh, we did one on Hawkspox, another one on X-Men with Jonathan Hickman, and then another one on Excalibur, and now we met, we finally come to X-Force, which is probably my favorite of the Donovex books. Um, in terms of quick hits, what did you guys kind of feel about this first six issues? Go for it, Paul. Well, I remember when I first read this book, I was very angry with this book. Um, <laughs> but um, for some of the initial stuff they tried to do, it's a very, it's a very dark book, right? Like, like Stuff happens in this book. It doesn't hold, pull any punches. There's some really graphic... <laughs> violence and, and crazy stuff that uh, Benjamin Percy here puts these characters through and it's some pretty gruesome stuff um, and uh, the one thing I will give it tons of credit for it's made me really really enjoy uh, Black Tom Cassidy as he's made another uh, amazing example of here's this character with this cool power set and how we can uh, imbue him and, and make it work in this really cool way with Krakoa um, he's just another fine example of that even sage to a certain degree is, is that but black tom though is just blew me away on how he is like this interesting security system merger with coco is a really fascinating concept mm-hmm. um i if we're doing quick hits i really like the book i i wouldn't say it's my favorite of the line of that first year but I guess it's not saying a whole lot because the first year is so strong. It, this could fall anywhere in there. I'd say this is probably top three, though, at least. Hmm. Um, for sure, it's near the top. So I, I, I greatly enjoyed this. And yes, we can get into further, bigger stuff after the <laughs> this, After the quick the hits? Yeah. Well, so I have a, a, a kind of a broad question for you, Nate, because I, I don't think you and I have ever talked about this book. Um, so I'm curious what your take is on this. But I always felt, looking at the artwork by Kassara, that it really reminded me of Jerome Pena doing X-Force as well. And I wonder if you had that same feeling or not. Um, now that you say it, I can see it. I, I didn't get the same feeling. I don't... I don't even know now that I would say that's necessarily the artist I would connect it to, but absolutely the colors, I think, helped tremendously. I think if the colors was different, I might see that a little bit differently, but mm. certainly the um, very fine line work that Apeña is known for, and the way that Apeña crafts the human face, it's it's interesting. Like, uh, Frank Quietly, who you know is famous on, on the new X-Men run with um, 
like uh, Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison. Um, my wife Amber, she often talks about how she dislikes him because he makes everyone look really ugly, and the X Men to her have always been largely a lot of very attractive people, and that's kind of the way she knows them, and that's the way she prefers it. Um, but there is something to be said about drawing people by making them look unpleasing, and human beings can, can very much be unpleasant to look at, at at times. And there are a lot of people who don't, they don't fall into a, a classic quote unquote mold of attractiveness. So there's more varieties, what I'm saying, in the human condition, the human family, mm. as it were, than what we get in comics, which is often, you know, especially for X Men comics. The way it started off was a bunch of white people in a mansion and then has slowly become more diverse. So to see people that don't look attractive, like Beak, but also people who might not have – might have more of a human face and they also are sometimes uh, – you know, Xavier looks twisted a little bit in this shot or maybe looks older than we're used to seeing him. And everyone's not smoothed out completely as though they've been to a you know a beautician every single – before each episode or <laughs> tissue. There, there's something raw and real I guess about that, that, that it's not just a – a soap opera, even though a lot about X-Men very much is enjoyable because it is like a soap opera, but not everyone has to have been through that kind of makeup process. So Opeña, with his careful and very deliberate line work, can make characters look off sometimes or uncomfortable to look at in a way that you know we're not used to because we're used to seeing them so gla- as, as glamorous. And I would absolutely agree that Sarah does that as well. They have that in common. That feeling, yes, is, is definitely there. So I'm curious in general, like and again, this is something I, I don't think I've ever really talked about to, with you guys at any particular length. But it's interesting that I, I'm trying to think how long it's been. But I guess it's probably been at least a decade now where the interpretation of what X-Force is has been very different. Because ever since you've had – now I forget who it was. Wasn't it Kyle and Yost who kind of took X-Force in a, a new direction after Mazai Complex? Yep. The idea that you know X-Force was now going to be kind of the wet works of the X-Men. It was kind of a branch of them – but it was doing things that they, it was too dark and too dirty for them to do and very much became kind of a, a Wolverine-centric thing in a lot of ways often. But it's obviously so different from what X-Force had been for, you know, not quite 20 years at that point, but roughly 20 years. So, you know, do you ever kind of miss the kind of old-school paramilitary, you know, offshoot of trying to do a different version of Xavier's dream to being more proactive as opposed to it being the wet work of the X-Men? And do you, do you miss that, or do you think this was a better way for them to kind of refashion what X Force was? I say for me, much like the last episode when we talked about Excalibur, and I have not read the classic Excalibur stories. I've heard of them. I, I I've heard tell, but I'm not <laughs> a reader of the of the of the work, and I, I want to be, and I'm going to be getting epic collections eventually once I kind of make my Wolverine and my. I can, I'm going to call it uncanny, but even though it's not technically, it's just the, the, the X-Men epic line. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll work into those, X-Factor and X-Force, but yeah, I never really read those. So me coming into it, I, I started X-Force with Yost, um, and, and, and I guess that means for me they've always been that way. I know they haven't been, but for me, that's where I started. So I prefer the wet work stuff. I like the, the gritty stuff. I, I like action movies. I like watching those silly sometimes shocky short Baker and Stallone movies from the 80s and like you know spawn into the 90s and 2000s of just really crazy action and sometimes very violent you know, movies that I that, 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 that translate really well onto the page for X-Men and in this world of and I mentioned it like in the first few pages too um, Percy mentions that this is a new geopolitical status quo and we have to deal with it in a new way and it's like the humans the white the human supremacists at the beginning 
are talking in a way that's very metatextual. The, the mutants are also having to deal with this new geopolitical reality in a new way, and they and they have that early conversation in issue one, like we need a CIA, like we need um, a, a, a secret service or a secret police force or task force or spy force that can help us defend our borders and so yeah, why, why, it would have to be violent, wouldn't it? I mean, the humans, especially the human supremacists, are you, you, they, they escalated right in the first issue with Piotr coming home from Russia, trying to save people, um, expats, as it were, to Krakoa or refugees from Russia, and his legs are blown off. Like this is the human colossus. This is as unstoppable, unfazable. What must have happened in Russia? And of course, you get a clue in Marauders about what must have happened to him with neutralizing technology. But um, the, the humans escalated very, very quickly, and so it makes a lot of sense that the mutants have to as well. So I, I don't know that I felt the same way after Messiah Complex. I mean, I did see what Psychops was doing. I'm one of the maybe the few people that feels that Psychops was doing what he had to do. It's not, not easy. It wasn't pretty, and maybe it wasn't it wasn't moral. It wasn't ethically correct. But he was trying to save a group of people who, after the decimation, were almost extinct, and so he was using any means necessary to save the lives of the few mutants that were left. And it was that line from uh, Black Panther where T'Challa in the movie tells his son, um, you are a good man and it's a hard for a good man to be king. That's kind of how I feel about a, a Scott. Scott maybe was never really a good man. He was mostly a boy scout of Xavier, but he was trying to do best for his people. So each iteration of X-Force seemed to make sense because their, their backs were up against the wall. They had no choice. And to think that this iteration makes complete sense. It, I think again, Percy weaves the tale so well that everything, everything is um, in its place, and, and nothing seems too um, gregarious or, you know, um, too, too violent. Maybe, maybe it's too violent. I don't know. I'm just I'm looking at the page of Wolverine getting cut in half. I'm like, yeah, but in the context, it makes sense, right? Like. Well, yeah, it never – I don't know how this – I know what you're saying because it never feels excessive even though the violence is definitely there. Like it's a very violent book, but it also doesn't feel like it's violence for violence's sake. It does feel like it drives a point home. It's trying to get a certain sensibility around. And it's interesting to read it too because this is – and maybe I'm wrong, but I think this is the, the first X-Force that, that has ever operated under Xavier. Because we've seen it as, a, as something that came out of a very specific era of X-Men and kind of evolved after that. But it was, an, it was a Cyclops thing. Uh, Cyclops believing that this is what he had to do. But we never really have had to deal with, with uh, Xavier really being part of it um, and being aware of it. In fact, like he died in Messiah Complex before he probably even knew anything about X-Force. So it's just interesting that you know it, maybe it just feels different because he's around and X-Force and this version of X-Force is around. And yeah, it's obviously a, a reaction to what they need to be doing. I do find it's telling and interesting where when you first have that kind of, um, I forget what issue it is, probably issue four or so, when you have Xavier with who will end up being X-Force kind of saying, I was hoping we were beyond this. And I'm like, well, that's that's kind of an interesting, almost metatextual uh, comment, too, that, you know, maybe in some people would wish that the X-Force could be beyond just being the wet works. But, you know, Percy does such a great job with it that I, I, I just accept it. Let me just uh, correct my my word choice there. I, 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 gratuitous is the word I was looking for. Gregarious doesn't make any sense in this context. Uh, but, yeah, gratuitous violence. I think that's what some people are turned off by. But that is an interesting line from Xavier, too, because when you consider what he and Eric have been up to for the past 30 years or so, um, they've been doing a lot of really messed up things and making a lot of 
moral compromising choices along the way. And you even see that when, again, in Davos, where they're like, okay, uh, go up there and hack these people to bits. Don't kill them, but basically dismember all of these guards who are upstairs. And we're going to make a point of it, and we're going to threaten you. And by the way, Xavier, he's going to give a little line here about how he loves humans. I love you all. But Ensaba, Nur, and Eric are just going to make it very clear to you that we could kill everyone here if we needed to. Don't mess with us. It's an interesting thing that Xavier feels like they wouldn't need this. It's almost like he's... Because he's supposed to be made more, in my opinion. He was the idealist at the beginning of his dream, and through Moira, and also through combining with Eric and you'd probably also argue with Nathaniel Essex, with Mr. Sinister, that he's been forced to become more of a realist. Like, Perkoa is a more of a realist application of Xavier's original dream. We, they are segregating themselves literally on this island nation, this nation state, and because they know that she's told them that they're going to die every time, that the humans will kill them every time. They will butcher them or put them in concentration camps. Like, there's, there's, there's no scenario where they win, and why would he think that coming to this island would solve all that? That they wouldn't have a need for what? For violence? Mm-hmm. The humans would just be fine with it? And in the first issue, he's executed. And then he comes back to life, and in issue four, he's like, I, I didn't think we needed this. What do you mean? What, what are you talking about? The, the last time humans came to this island, they came with a kill crew. So it seems like he's just out of touch there. I don't really know. And I, and I guess the argument could be anyone who feels like the X-Force isn't necessary... I suppose is ignoring a very real geopolitical thing, which is you have to defend your borders, otherwise you have no borders. Hmm. Uh, Paul? Yeah, I guess there was just maybe naive hope that, you know, we're here, we're on our own island, we're not bothering you, you know, we, we've made our statement, you know, here, here's what we got to do. Because, you know, again, th- these the mutants as a race have never run their own nation before right so you know well, they, two or three times they did try but each time <laughs> sure. there's always right? some kind of drama for sure but you know as as they're trying to put this all together and you know they you know the, the, these humans have got, went as far as to skinning alive a yeah. mutant grafting it to their own skin in order to breach Kokoa's defenses which is crazy dark and, and a crazy concept in itself so you know when they come in and they're sniping people away um, yeah it's, just shooting women and children and, 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 and yeah. men who are running who are running from them just all slaughter right they, they don't care um, and, and that's just well a group of humans sending a statement saying what you thought we wouldn't you know fight back we thought you just you know waddle in here and take the world hostage with your drugs and we'd all be okay with it no so it's 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 a very um like it's very powerful right um but it does lose a bit of its luster because of you know resurrection like there's this terrible thing that's happened to all these mutants but you kind of you kind of know they're going to be okay um you know and my, my initial anger with the assassination of xavier in the first issue especially is i guess that was way too soon to play that card um but it was essentially revealed. That I can't remember where I read it or somewhere. I, 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 maybe it's not even true, but um, it was a means to an end to get Xavier back in the Xavier body, not the weird Phantom X body he got from whatever storyline it was where he came back. Um, that's the only reason they kind of did that so soon, just to get that loophole closed. Um, and 
I think in Hawks Pox there was a very clear graph on uh, the resurrection stuff and how key Xavier is to it and I don't think they explored how serious his death meant to all of that and he just we kind of brought him back and everything's fine and there's no real repercussions and I think if you're going to do that fine I know it was a means to an end but I would have liked them to maybe really um Explore that more, I guess. Rather than just bring it back and it was just okay, we got that done. Check it off the list and let's let's move on with the story. I, was, I know this isn't. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say I always kind of felt that it's interesting hearing you say that, Paul, because I remember when it first came out and you were like, "Come on, really?" And I'm like, I always kind of felt like that's a natural place to go because otherwise, I, I feel like that's the kind of dangling thing, like if Xavier is so integral and they need him and without it, it all falls apart, I think it makes sense to immediately take him off the board. Yes, there's a, a kind of a sense of, you know, are there is there really going to be a sense of uh, of peril for our mutants if they can always be resurrected? But I think they've done a really good job of, of still making you feel for these characters, even though they can die, even though horrible things happen to them. Like, you know, some of these characters die a lot. I mean, Kid Omega, bad things have happened to that guy. And, you know, and that's even up into the current run and the current issues that uh, Nate hasn't gotten to yet and will eventually get to in like a year and a half. But, I mean, bad things happen to these people. and They want to kill Kill Megan every issue just for funds at this point. But, I, but here's the thing. Like, I, I don't feel like it's cheap. I still think it matters because they found a way... Like, when you have a character die, but they don't have, like, the most recent up- upload from the, the guy's mind, then the question is, well, why did he die and how? And how do we fix this? And how do we, you know, so it doesn't, there's a lot of questions that kind of come up out of it. And I think that's really interesting and the different perspectives. Like, there's one issue, actually, the most recent issue of X-Men, which, again, I'm waiting a year and a half for Nate to eventually get to. I'm really excited <laughs> to talk to Nate about it because there were some really interesting questions and I'm like, well, I like, how does this, what, what does this mean? How does that work? How do, and I cannot wait to talk about it. I have to wait like a year and a half, but I'm really excited. And it's because they've taken death and yeah, death may not itself have meaning, but there's so many questions about what happens after that and how resurrection works and why it works. And even with Domino, like there's a lot that they play with her and what she goes through and the trauma and how that you know, could be repaired or, you know, forgotten. And her and Colossus have a lot of, you know, I, I guess it's not here, it's in the next volume, but there's a lot that comes from that. So as much as they take death off the table, they've given us some really cool philosophical toys to play with. I I got my hand up. Are you, okay, fine. I'll oh, sorry, on. Nate. <laughs> I was trying to feature. Um, yeah, there, I, I want to talk more about Domino because you're right. I think that even though it's a Wolverine-focused book, popular character book um, yeah Domino's arc is I think the most important and I, I do want to get to that talk about that but kind of t- touch back on a few things you were saying before about death and I think death needs I think maybe the book that's most about death is this one I know that Marauders deals with death as well especially with Kitty Pride, but uh, this one asks some very and answers to an extent some very important philosophical questions um, if I go to the beginning of issue two with Magneto talking to Jean and you know, saying how horrible this is, and he starts fashioning this sort of Damocles out of the helmet, which I am going to assume is going to become important in Ten of Swords. Is that true? Uh, Does this sword come up? You, I know there are swords in it. Yeah, this isn't one of them. That's sad. Okay, anyway. So. <laughs> is, is, is Cerebro Sword not part of it? I can't remember. Nope. Okay. That's preposterous. <laughs> but anyway, she says, I think I can fix this. I think I can bring it back. 
right? And then Eric's like, you think? You will. You must. She says, I will. That's that's what I meant. And then he gives her a speech about, like, this is everything. Like, you need to have Xavier. This is a question I think that gets brought up in X Factor and Hooked as well, that just because they have been able to resurrect people before doesn't mean it's 100% guaranteed every time. If there was a resurrection machine and there was a chance the machine could break because machines can break, then I would be still nervous dying because there's a chance I don't get to come back. So that would mean that it's not just willy-nilly I want to die. I would think I would be still concerned. And it also means, well, and they ask this question a lot about the five. What if the engineer or the mechanic who fixes the resurrection machine dies? Do we have redundancies? Do we have backups? Okay, what if all of those die? Can we do this? And so Jean, this is her first attempt, and she's like, I think I could do it. And Eric's like, what do you mean? Like, what? This is nothing without, without Xavier. So that's an interesting question, too, of what happens if things just don't work out the way you expect them to. And I think all of us, because we live in a world of technology, know what it feels like to put the key, the, the key, the, the key into your car, knowing you're late for work, turning it, and it not starting. And you're like, of course, this day of all days, like we've all had little moments where it's not necessarily life or death, but I'm sure there are people who have had life or death situations with technology. That's a thing. And then one of the other moments that if you can forgive me for kind of going off a little bit here and maybe changing issues to issue, Go ahead. issue three again, the skeleton key, there's, there's at least two comics so far in the first year that I have read because I'm so woefully behind and, and and Adam's made that clear. But, <laughs> well, I guess three very, really cool philosophical questions. And I really like philosophy, and I love philosophy in science fiction, and I love philosophy in X. And I think it's one of the books that most is most rife with excellent philosophical questions. Um, Fantastic Four is also a good book. Um, and so this book, and then Hellions, the first volume of Hellions. And of course, Hickman's X-Men all ask these great theological and philosophical questions. So I'm going to go to a few pages in, in issue three. It's a conversation between Jean and, and Beast, and they're here at the tree. Uh, what is it? The Rebirth Tree. It has an actual Latin name. What's it called? I don't know. But um, they're here at the tree, and so they're asking these questions. And Jean's talking about she's died many times, and it's made me a better person. Um, and she says, you're suggesting that death, or the fear of it, rather, makes people selfish? I suppose it doesn't encourage generosity or bravery, she says. But what I'm saying is, without death, life is less about me and more about us, the long game of mutant kind. That's the dream of that's the dream of Krakoa, and we're uh, we're charged with protecting it. So I think that's a really interesting question. A lot of people would say, yeah, if you can die and come back, then life is meaningless. Um, people are going to be selfish. They're not going to care about other people, and. Gene says, I think it's the opposite. I think without the threat of death, now I'm not so worried about me. It's not all about me anymore. And my time and my resources, now I can give. Now I can connect with. Now we can unite and make it more about everyone. And then there's that big picture thing, which I suppose indirectly this is somewhat of an indictment against democracy. Like one of the one of the problems with democracy is that it, it switches over so often that the ruling party every few years or so that you can't do a lot of long-term goals, long-term planning, because then the next government will come in and they will just kind of destroy your best they plan. But with immortal mutants, I mean, isn't that the goal that, that we see in House of X and Powers of Ten? 
that the humans don't know it, but eventually they're going to start using technology and grafting themselves into technology, becoming transhumans, becoming posthumans, and that they will eventually end up thousands of years in the future, like ascending and merging with like the technarchy and stuff like that and making it a, a phalanx world. And that's how the humans will forcefully evolve themselves to combat mutants who are evolving naturally, right? So there's there's this idea of, well, the humans now are doing that. Well, the mutants are going to do the same thing. We're now allowing ourselves to evolve maybe even at a faster or better rate. So there's that macro picture, but I love the micro. I love this idea that it's more time for family. It's more time to connect with each other. Mm-hmm. We're not terrified of when will we eat and where will we sleep and will we live or die in the morning, but I know that when I lay down with my spouse, I'll wake up with them, right? And I can be with them still. So it's it's the, the philosophical proposition that Gene takes is almost a heavenly one, right? It's a celestial one. It's a it's a it's a complete thing. It's not about oh, if we keep dying, then nothing matters. It's no, everything matters because we can't die. And I love that that's her take. And of course, in Hellions, is a different take. And so I love that there's all these great conversations about it. And I thought that was really. It's definitely the most philosophical the X Men have ever been. Uh, like, like I mean, obviously, there's always been some underpinnings of you know wh- about otherness and et cetera, and about what that is. But this is very different takes that we're seeing on on other questions. Yeah, and if I I just thought about this as as Paul was talking, but the fact that the humans already these these what, what is this group of homo Zeno Zeno yeah. yeah what a great what a perfect name right <laughs> alien. Uh, or xenophobia, right? Uh, that they're grafting and they're, they're butchering Domino, right? They're cu- cutting the skin. She loses an eye. It's a horrible picture when you finally figure out uh, where Domino is, and, and, and Logan finds her, and that they are, yeah, grafting themselves with with mutant parts. So they are already, in this very crude way, I suppose, being te- um, transhumans. They are using human tech and now grafting and splicing themselves and changing their DNA and cloning making multiple clone copies of these skinless assassins and then we get a clue that perhaps they're even installing them with false memories right because um, eventually i'll find the issue uh, domino connecting to her arc is about to kill one of the humans that they the human terrorists the human assassins that they capture and she's about to kill him she's about to execute him and they're trying to talk her down off that ledge like forge i believe and beast or beast it is i think who's saying that you can't kill this man and she's like, why not? He's nothing. He's he's just a clone. And he's like, no, I'm real. I'm a real person. You can't don't, don't kill me. Um, so she kind of st- you know, stays her hand and doesn't kill this guy. Where does he say that? Um, oh, I, I guess this might be issue five or six. Anyway, um, they are doing anything they can, just like years before with the um, uh, what they called the Omega Sentinels. Is that what they were in um, in Bastion's program? Prime Sentinels. Uh, Prime Sentinels? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So they were installing Sentinel technology into human sleeper agents who could then, like, almost like extremists, right? Like, it would burst out of them and they would kind of shed their human bodies and become this weird cybernetic cyborg Sentinel. Yeah. Now these humans are grafting themselves with the thing that they hate, with this this, this, um, minority metaphor, with the the skin of of a mutant. And then using it to enter the the security systems of Krakoa, which I think is super awesome too, by the way. Getting back to what Paul was saying about the melding of 
uh, Black Tom Cassidy and the island, and that the island has this spore shield of like a it's airspace around it. It can detect anyone who doesn't or does have an X gene, and all this really cool stuff. So they can Halo drop down. They're already beginning. Like I just feel like this is connected to the larger path for humans that they're going to do anything it takes with technology to make themselves another stage of human evolution to do what is necessary to kill the mutants. Um, so already, I just feel like all of that escalates things. It's so it's so existential, right? The threat. To, to, to go back for a second, I mean, wasn't that essentially the idea of the U Men too, though? Uh, that uh, Morrison yeah, introduced. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. This does connect to that. So it kind of it never goes away, and, and I guess that's Moore's point, right? They'll never stop because for the humans is also an existential threat because they are they're staving off their own their own annihilation or their own you know loss of relevance. I guess that's kind of what we all do, right? Isn't that what all every older generation does? That each older generation realizes its own irrelevance at a certain point, and then has this weird moment where they turn on the younger generations and complain about them and you guys are all lazy and addicted to your phones and you're all gonna ruin the world and it's kind of weird I mean as a school teacher I just I maybe I hear it a lot more because my teenager students are often faced with that like they'll hear people muttering under their breath about them or overtly yelling at them for being no good teenagers loitering I'm like we, we were just at the mall walking to our car and we got yelled at so Maybe there is this thing about humanity, right? That once we feel we're irrelevant, we kind of lash out at other people or almost irrationally. It's not, it's not the younger generation's fault that eventually we'll all die. And maybe it's, it's not the mutants' fault that the humans are going to die. It's just part of this part of nature. But it doesn't mean that we're not going to act irrationally about it. Or at least make these humans own, I guess. Mm-hmm. I have a larger question about the role that Beast takes in this book. Because Beast has been an interesting character in terms of how they've chosen to characterize him at different points. Because, I mean, when you had Bendis writing him, it was him being kind of exa- uh, very exasper- exasperated uh, about what was going on and trying to fix it because things were going on a, weir- a, a bad path. But the, the, the Beast of X-Force feels like someone who's very much in the bad path and kind of okay with it. And how do you feel... How do you feel about the character going in that direction? Paul? I want to give Paul a moment, but maybe... Should I just go? I think you, you can go. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard some conversation about this um, already about how Beast has been going down a wrong path. But I think it's been years in the making, right? Like, I can definitely agree that he... Sides against Scott in the Schism years in the, the two schools, but his siding against Scott doesn't necessarily mean that he's he's not ready to make compromise like moral compromises himself, ethical compromises, and and he, he shows that right by going into the past and pulling their past selves into the future. He says, "I hope that they would be able to snap you out of it, Scott," but. A lot of the criticism is you don't just get to do that. You don't just get to play with the space-time continuum. What if one of these kids dies over here in the future? Then you've destroyed our timeline or altered it irrevocably or whatever. And so he's definitely seen as a mad scientist, even as he's pointing fingers at Scott. And rightfully so. I mean, Scott just killed their mentor, their father figure, after ABX. Um, but Beast doesn't necessarily have a, a good platform to stand on here, does he? Like a doesn't have that moral authority he's working in the illuminati 
secretly without the knowledge of everyone except for, I guess, Xavier. Maybe Jean would know she was alive, but she's not alive at the time. And he was only working with the Illuminati because Xavier was dead. Yeah. Um, but he was, he was doing it, and he was keeping secrets. And he's kept secrets before, and he's made moral compromises before. In the 90s and in the 2000s and the 2010s. Um, so at first, all I knew about Beast was the version of the moon. I was like, Dark Beast seems like a really weird thing. Why would Beast go so dark? But then when you read more and more about the history of this character and about how he's essentially this, uh, uh, the, there's talk about like people in minority groups being self-hating, self-loathing. That you can be a self-loathing woman, a self-loathing black person, a self-loathing Jewish person. Like that's, that's kind of a thing. It exists because you really wish to exist within the hegemonic culture, but you can't. And because you can't, you hate what you are, which is very sad. And Beast is, at least from the, almost the very beginning, right, been self-loathing as a mutant. Mm. Uh, he, he didn't like that his mutation was more obvious. Like, Warren can hide his wings, but his large, oversized limbs, he can't. And then when he tries to cure that mutation, and it goes back, he becomes grand, becomes ape-like, ape-like, and becomes cat-like, and... You know, he's dating Trish Tilby, and at one point, you know, in the early Morrison run, she breaks up with him because she's like, people are using the word bestiality, we can't be together. And it's like, you know, brought to tears about that because he's always hated who he is as soon as he's, his mutation came forward, right? So he's been this self-loathing guy. He's wanted to, quote-unquote, cure mutations, stop people from being mutants. He's gone and joined the world cops, the, the Avengers, to kind of like try to be like one of them. Try another way of trying to be like a human and pretend that he's not what he is but of course is so and then all these moral compromises that he makes so to see him in AOA as the Dark Beast actually I don't think is a huge surprise and now it seems like the Beast that had been given us in I don't know since maybe the 90s maybe even later is more and more the Dark Beast hmm. so that's upsetting what do we how do we fix that? I don't know. I, the writers, I, I think they can. It's just, Mercy, I guess, has taken the torch from writers before him. I said, yeah, okay, well, this is the beast that I've inherited. He's he's not really a good guy. He might have good intentions, but, you know, in the second volume of X-Force, it's, it's even worse. It, it's it's interesting because, like, I, it's hard to imagine having, a an, a like, an issue where you have Warren, Bobby, Scott... Hank and Gene all sitting together because they've been like some of them have been through a lot more shit than others, obviously, but they just feel like they're not even in the same class anymore. Like they're the original class. And yet, how would those guys all talk to each other at the same time? Because they feel like they're so different and where which is good. But I mean, they've they've like I feel like at times Bobby was always the jokester, but they've definitely leaned more heavily into that. Like he's he's kind of like the X-Men's Human Torch, where they always kind of reset him to be the childish one, which as he gets older and there's more and more younger characters, it feels more out of place and kind of awkward. Um, and then you have characters like Beast who goes so far down the rabbit hole in terms of, you know, being much darker. And it's hard to even imagine him saying stars and garters anymore or bouncing around and hanging out with Simon Williams. It just feels like a different person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's definitely, if you want to call it, devolved. Or no, that doesn't sound right contextually with him. But he, his character has gone down that dark path, and he's very, he's very different. And I guess you could argue that his character 
what do they call it, character suicide when somebody kills the character or they end the character as they were. They character assassination. Character, character assassination, that's what it is. Um, is. Is that true of him? Or is it possible for some characters to go down really, really messed up dark paths and try to seek redemption or in some cases never seek that redemption because that's also true of some people in real life? Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like Cyclops went down a dark road but they were trying to start redeem him. Like, they were trying to make him have found some of the error of his ways. And even when he was in the short-lived X-Men run prior to um, Hickman kind of throwing everything out and going in his own direction, it definitely felt like a, they, they were trying to redeem who he was and trying to save the human the mutant race again when everything seemed even worse, uh, if possible. Uh, but it, it, made it, it felt like they were reclaiming the heroic Scott Summers that people kind of grew up with. And it just is an interesting juxtaposition that with Beast... We just don't get that. Um, whereas everyone else, you know, like, you know, Angel's about to have his own book, so we'll get to see what, what that looks like as part of X-Core. Um, but it's interesting to see that Beast is kind of the one that people continue to go darker and darker. And I, maybe he doesn't come back from that. Maybe that's just the way it is. It's weirder as a fan to go back and read, like, you know, if I read an X-Men book from 20 years ago, Cyclops doesn't feel fundamentally too different. But if I go back and I read, you know, the anguish of Hank McCoy trying to solve the legacy virus and then look at this, I'm like, what happened? Yeah. Um, Bobby's an interesting one, too, because to me, his bravado made a lot of sense to me, his jokey, jokey nature, because when he came out, when it was revealed that he was gay, it's like, oh, well, that would make a lot of sense if that's the way he was before, because he was trying to hide aspects of himself or trying to steer away from you know, what the secret he was keeping. But I, I guess it's just his personality. I mean, there are some people that refuse to grow up. I mean, maybe some people here, present company included, um, and, and, and can generally be a defense mechanism. So just because he's now out of the closet doesn't mean that there aren't other aspects of his personality. He's either accommodating for adjusting for with his humor or uh that maybe he's just a funny guy i don't know like i don't necessarily see him even as childish i like him in marauders i think he adds a certain kind of uplifting narrative and and because he's kind of childlike a little bit you know when he's jumping through borders portals or eating things off trees and saying hey kitty make sure you eat some from this tree it'll grow anything you want like that's he, he's a great he's a great way to introduce and welcome the audience into this world. You know? He's a guide to the world of X Men. But you're right; I don't think they would make sense eating dinner together. No, not anymore. Like I, I think back to after uh, X Men 350, where he had Scott and Sheen kind of left the X Men for a while because you know he was recovering from having a bomb in his chest, like you do. Um, and then they went to like Anchorage, Alaska, and they were hanging out just the O five. And that subplot never really went anywhere at the time. No. But it was just kind of cool to see, you know, that family together because it, it didn't actually happen that often. If you actually think about it, like there was long periods where you know you'd have two of them would be on the Champions or Beast would be over with the Avengers. Like there was a long time before X Factor where they just weren't together at all. And even with uh, Claremont's re- reboot, if you call it that, he was only there for like what three issues for Mutant Genesis. But, um, yeah, there's blue and gold. They're still split by blue and gold anyway. So you're right. There's, there's not been that. And then Gene, of course, dying in the, in the Morrison years and, and, and so on. So, yeah, the fact that they aren't together. But, I mean, there's so many characters. I wish we could see them talk more to each other. There's a lot of that. Like, you're on an island nation together. It would be great if we could see more of that. 
because mm-hmm. it's finally the scene and piece in on this team together um, that they do have those moments to talk, that they have conversations that feel like only the two of them can have conversations that they do uh, with each other and, and talk in a way of like they feel like they're ancient, they're really really old friends, good friends. So, when you get some of that that comes back with, with Wolverine and Domino and a bit with Colossus and Domino later on because they've had some relationships um, on and off throughout the past so you know Wolverine's even talking to Domino at one point and I'm not sure if it's in this volume or not but I remember her talking to him talking to her and saying look we can bring you back and you forget all this like all the torture all this crazy crap you just went through all this vicious stuff You're, you were skinned alive and your eyeballs gone we can fix you and even she's talking about the like this is part of me now, so do I want to like be resurrected and forget that? Um, and then you know, Colossus trying to step away again to do the classic Colossus thing of stepping away from the violence and paint forever on a farm, and she's trying to you know help him find peace or drag him back into the fight, you know, depending on the day. But uh, you know, those I think those dynamics are still kind of there with some characters. But you're right, we're not, it's not Kelsey Grammer Beast anymore. It's a, it's a much different. Uh, crazy character that's nowhere close to the beast you remember from the cartoon or anything. He's gone through a lot of shenanigans. He's one of those characters that people seem to want to constantly play with and tweak. Uses genius, um, mad scientist kind of thing, and kind of work with that angle and see where it goes. You know, I now I'm going to reread this and just concentrate and pretend that Kelsey Grammer is doing the voice anyway. <laughs> because I, I don't think you can imagine. Uh, what was his name? Uh, Booza. I don't think you can imagine him doing this beast like uh, no. from the '90s show. Like that's that wouldn't fit anymore. No, I don't know. I don't. Probably, he probably has a surprising range. He could probably do a. Good <laughs> oh, I'm not saying anything against Booza. I'm just saying like he had a certain I don't know sensibility of what Beast was, and I that's the part that's I guess hard to reconcile. Um, going back, Nate, to something it's like when Rhinox became a Decepticon or a yeah. Uh, yeah, a in uh, Beast Machines, right? The, the salt of the earth wouldn't hurt a butterfly. Maximal becomes this, you know, evil villain. Oh yeah, I, 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 never, I never understood that angle. I, I told the voice actor um, uh, Newman, who I've met at many conventions, like, you know, he, he enjoyed it as as the voice actor because they gave the character, you know, a little bit of uh, a different take. Um, so he enjoyed the challenge of being the bad guy. Um, but even him the other day goes, yeah, like it was. It was a very odd choice to go bad. Um, can we talk about a little bit of technology? Because that was brought up last time um, regarding any aspects of like, the with the costume technology of Kirkoa. A lot of technology, right? Well, Forge's uh, little little uh, workshop here. That even the one cover of issue was five of uh, him with that kind of plant-like mech suit and all the weapons laid out on, on the floor is mm-hmm. a wicked cover um, and just you know, again a, a great way to how do we use Forge and have him invent cool shit with Krakoan science you know again another amazing like, this is probably my favorite part of the whole new era here that Hickman's created like, the crazy amazing original ideas that they're, they're inventing with these powers and, and the connection with Krakoa so I think it's my favorite part to touch on all the time it's just Amazing! I love this. It's like the the mech suit that Ripley uses an alien and all these kind of guns mm. and stuff like that. Just fantastic. This isn't. And he makes technically thesis. This for, is uh, for Domino. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, Nate, and that... she can make it do whatever she wants. It comes a blaster. She can pop claws from it. Gives her a glowy cable eye. It's fantastic. It's a war mitten. <laughs> That's what it is. 
Um, one thing I, I, I appreciated, Nate, that they kind of threw it in there because it kind of makes sense. And I think everyone kind of assumed this other anyways, but um, I guess it's in what, issue four where they have the, the, the punch bowl of adamantium. So uh, whenever Wolverine dies, they could just forcibly you know bond it back to his skeleton, which is kind of terrifying. Yes, and they're filthy rich, so they can afford it. But I, those are little touches, right? Those are little details that you would ask as what ifs if you were mailing in to the X offices and they've clearly sat down and had a whiteboard. Like imagine being able to be in that room, right? With Hickman and the crew and them just getting a series of whiteboards and they order in some lunch and you sit back and you just talk shop with some of the biggest geeks of the universe about the X-Men and about this world they're going to build, this island. And everyone just gets to go, what happens when Wolverine dies? And they're like, oh yeah, that's true. Do you have to get the adamantium back each time? I mean, Adam, you, you brought up that other idea that, you know, we talked about this with House of X, that even if you can bring someone back, you can't always bring them back with all their memories, right? That they were either too outside of the field of, of data collection for Super uh, Pro, or there was a blip, or any number of things could happen, and a, a person could have a chunk of their life that's never recorded, and that version of that person is that's dead. That, they're gone forever. Like it doesn't matter that you can replace them with a copy from a, you know, maybe a few years ago. If you've lived for a year or two without getting recorded, or even who cares how long it is? Does a year matter, or a month, or fifteen minutes of you being you that you'll never have because it's gone? The data is gone. Although I guess you could get into a discussion about our memories anyway. The fact that our memories don't really record actual facts mm. that we don't have computer brains that you are. You know, we're getting into this thesis, I suppose, a little bit. Um, you are a version of yourself that you tell yourself that you are through the stories, the storytelling mechanism of our brain. But that our memories are more stories than they are actual data. Yeah. Um, but aside from that, that there are ways to really experience death. That you could have a, a, a two people fall in love and have a relationship for a month, and then. They weren't recorded because they were off having a good time on a different island, maybe outside the field of whatever Cerebro for some reason. They were they were having a, I don't know, they were dating in Mojo World, let's say. And then they die. When they come back, they won't know who each other is. And other people could say, oh, like, I, I know that you bought, you know, tickets to go hang out and then... Have a vacation together. Have that go. And they're like, "What are you talking about?" I don't even know. You're uh, you're killing me, Nate. Because uh, this is everything I want to talk about, but I have examples now. <laughs> anyway, so um, <laughs> we'll talk about that. I guess I'll have to read ahead. But to be part of that group and to be brainstorming this stuff, how do you deal with Wolverine's adamantium? What happens with you know uh, the, the humans being able to come on Turkakoa? What happens with citizenship and all these things? Um, it's really, really cool. I think this book is so rife with ideas that if we, if you're a reader who's not sure, I don't know. If you're a reader who hasn't read this, I don't know why you're listening this far to this podcast because we're just spoiling everything. It's true. Um, we are. But if for whatever reason you are and you're on the fence because, yes, there is gore in this, I would say if you can handle some kind of gore, there's so many other things to like about this book. Character development and philosophy and Cohen culture that I would highly recommend it's actually how crazy like Wolverine is in issue five. Like he has half his body. Yeah. Then you know, he models the one. Guy. When he stabs that guy from like a and sitting he's got position. This crazy evil like demon smile going 
eyes glowing red, <laughs> just going. And these other guys unload their guns into him. He's like nothing left but bullet holes, you know. And Forge and Domino come rushing in, and, and Forge literally squishes the legs that Domino hauled. <laughs> yeah, <from the> gate, <laughs> swishes them back together, and he heals. All right, I'm good. To- <laughs> I'm good to go. Like, <laughs> like, talked about one of Wolverine's best kind of respawns of all time. Is that a callback to Ultimate Hulk versus Ultimate Wolverine? Yeah, where a little bit. Uh, maybe. Yeah. And this, and we asked those questions too. Like, well, does the top half grow another bottom, and the bottom grow another top? Like, are there two Wolverines now? And they're like, uh, no. It's just, no. He heals the most whole he could be, and then he's. Don't his legs try to come to him or stuff like that? I don't remember. Anyway, I can't remember, but no, something like no that. No worries here. It doesn't matter here because Forge solves that problem for um, No, Nate, the, um, to go back to one of my earliest comments, so I was just looking it up to check. So Dean White, who does the colors here, he was the colorist on, on Uncanny X-Force when you had uh, Jerome Pena doing it. So there's probably that's but, probably what does a lot of the, the similarities for me, just come from that. It's, it's tremendous. The colors are tremendous. It definitely has a feel. Uh, combine that with inking, and the ink work has lots of nice deep shades and uh, shadow. So, uh, this kind of almost melancholic color with the, the dark blacks. Almost in every page, you can see some nice deep blacks. Um, just it have, gives it a very bold look. I, I'm completely like I, I can see why you see the opinionists, if we can call it that. But then there's even moments where it's supposed to be hey, they've done the job and they're no longer running from human supremacists. This is the end of issue five and you've got Sunset Cliffs, Krakoa, again, would love to hang out in Sunset Cliffs with everybody here. <laughs> That'd be great. But even the colors here, when Logan's talking with um, with, with Domino, there's just this, it, it still feels melancholic. I don't know. There's something about this color palette. Love the black Tom plant face talking to Gateway. Love that shot. Tom. Yeah, very, very good. That's the moment, other moment where these almost grotesque pencils become beautifully otherworldly. It's interesting, yeah, because I think, and uh, I guess Paul mentioned this, but this is probably, from a lot of people, the best Black Tom we've ever had. Like, the most interesting, um, you know, this this feels like he has a more of a character, and he has a, a purpose, and the, again, they've given... A lot of characters are having a purpose and more characterization than they've had in years, and yeah. it's cool. Yeah, they cracked open the catalog and said, "Hey, how, this guy's got these cool plant powers. How can we make that more awesome? Like, it's it's just so great that they went flipping through and going, let's let's make some of these you know characters uh, awesome again. You know, and they've and a lot of books like characters that you don't think will be amazing, like uh, you know, jumping ahead a bit to X Factor, like Northstar is great in that book, and mm-hmm. even Dakin's good in that book. And I hate Dakin with a thriving <laughs> passion, right?" Um, so yeah, there's some really cool stuff that uh, they've done with this world. Dakin looks. I, I, I went out and got the uh, the Marvel Legend uh, Black Tom. Uh, oh wow! Figure. It dropped down super cheap on Amazon. So I I originally <laughs> wanted to go with Juggernaut because you know they're they're that pair. I remember from the Deadpool comics, but you know this boy. Every time I see him, I go, yeah, I think I gotta buy the toy now because they've got me sold on Black Tom casting. Yeah, it's nice that they focus on his what his powers mean for him as a personality trait or as a part of his identity, rather than his identity being an Irish guy who has his stick that can shoot beams. And those yeah. don't affect his much more popular brother, who even saying that, Sean Cassidy's not even that popular as an X-Man. I mean, with X-Men fans, sure, but not with the general population. No. 
So he's that guy whose beams don't work on Sean Cassidy, and he's an Irish guy. Like that's that's kind of all he's been for me. And yeah, he hangs out a lot. Um, his buddies with Juggernaut. So other than that, now he's really yeah. really cool and almost almost very almost horrific, right? There the idea I mean, of him being going kind of crazy though, right? I think it's so connected with Kakoa. Like, yeah. where, where where does he end and Kakoa start and vice versa, right? Like there seems yeah. to be some, there's a melt there for sure. But he's almost, is almost, you know, and he, but he takes his job as like the the quote unquote head of Kirkland Security very seriously. He wants to like make everyone proud of him. He doesn't want to be that this this boob. He wants to be, you know, the guy. And 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 he, he fails a lot. Benjamin <laughs> doesn't succeed very much because security is a breach checker constantly in this run. But he's so determined to be awesome at his job, and I, I love that passion that he wants to do right by this he's he's really accepted his role in the society and he wants to do proud by it and yeah you're right i love that they've made this guy someone that matters i hope somebody mentions that in the future issues that like Kirkoe is a much more powerful personality let's say than black tom or much more powerful entity so melding and because mondo in new mutants he really hates it he does not like when spells him or merges him with Krakoa to to do certain things. He's like, that's horrible. I felt like I was being turned inside out, or whatever he says. So Mondo's reaction is, is very averse. Black Tom, it seems much connected or able to connect, but it might be worth be very uh, uh, worth asking the question: At what point does Krakoa start really taking over him or controlling him? And he's an appendage or an extension of Krakoa rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to make mention of is just in terms of the creative team, it's interesting because like, I feel like these guys, not that they've come out of nowhere, but it kind of, <laughs> because like I look at Josh Kassar's, um, you know, main kind of credits and he kind of, a lot of them start in 2016. So it's still very recent. And like he did inks on secret empire. Uh, he did, there was a short lived Falcon series from 2017. He was the artist on, and then he did like an issue or two of venom and then he gets X force and suddenly you know, I'm like, I want to see everything this guy does, but it's just interesting how fast yeah, it feels like he kind of got fast tracked to a really big book. Like X Force is a big part of Dawn of X, and I think one of the more popular titles to, to kind of come out of it. Um, so I just, I'm really impressed with a relatively young artist being able to do, or at least newer artists, I should say, uh, being able to do such a, a phenomenal job. And again, uh, as we said earlier. The colorist, Dean White, obviously does a lot of the heavy lifting as well um, and is really able to kind of fill in a lot of that. But even so, uh, Kassara does all the pencils and inks here, and it's all him. It's a lot of work. It's a lot. I mean, there's no one picking you up. There's no one doing any finishes. This isn't rough breakdowns. This is, you know, totally finished art. And, you know, I believe he works digitally, which is part of what probably makes it easier to ink himself as well. Um, but it's just interesting how, you know, he doesn't have a lot of credits, and yet he's just killing it here. And then even when you look at Ben Percy... What same a pun. Like, hmm? <laughs> what a pun. Yeah, he's killing it. <laughs> uh, even when you look at Percy, you know, he... Again, I'm just looking at looking at comics.org and looking at his credits. He kind of came on he came on the scene with Green Arrow over at DC for like years. He was working on Green Arrow and then worked a little bit on Titans and then suddenly he's over at Marvel and he's doing, you know, Wolverine and X-Force. So these guys are, you know, the kind of the new breed of creators and so far I'm very impressed with both of them and I'm really excited to see what other things they do. Oh yeah, 100%. Um, it's interesting too how this series or this volume ends 
kind of into the next story, right? Like you get this Terra Verde story that I guess when I was reading this the first time or reading it before reading it any further that you get to the Terra Terra Verde stuff about, again, another group of humans who are using technology to uh, evolve themselves. This is a version of uh, technology that's based in plants. It's telefloronics. And uh, it, it doesn't have to be, you know, technology doesn't have to come in the form of a metal thing with gears on it, right? That, that they are essentially going to use this technology to create a military force or a threat that B says this is a threat to Krakoa, that plants, plant technology particularly will be a big threat. Which of course we get into later with uh, Black Tom and the next flight and stuff, but um, this ends with the threat that he saw being a, such a threat, still, you know, being able to revivify and remold itself because of its plant-based nature. And he says, uh, "That's why I'm. This is why X Force exists, and that's why I'm its conductor because I'm always five moves ahead of everyone because I'm never wrong." Um, so maybe in the end, obviously, there's like another series of volumes or at least a volume and some single issues I haven't read and maybe they are they do have a plan for beasts to be redeemed maybe the horrible things that happen in the next volume will make sense in the larger picture because in, if he does if he doesn't take on this hardline beast kind of uh, way of, of approaching things that the humans would absolutely have won right without him maybe he has to have this dark path because there's no other option and uh, as long as I guess Percy can keep making that more clear and, and maybe Beast knew it that he had to do it this way he, he's not being horrible for horribleness's sake maybe there's some way to save his character although I will say if they also were to reveal I know there's a rule on Krakoa that you can't have any clones but Dark Beast isn't a clone of Beast he's an alternate universe version of Beast so I don't know the last appearance of Dark Beast pre-Krakoa but if they were to say Hey, by the way, at some point, you know, Dark Beast swapped out with Hank, and this has been the other Beast this whole time. That could also be a way of kind of bringing his character back to bounding and, and happy, I suppose, if they wanted to. Yeah, maybe. Or, like, did Xavier tell him stuff that, like, Moira told him? Like, I, uh, did everyone know about Moira? Is Moira unknown? Is her I don't her think power? so. No, I don't no. think so either, right? So, no. but did Xavier go? Look, he knows what has to be done. There are going to be some hard choices, and maybe he, maybe he's given this role to Beast, and Beast, you know, is t- going down this path because Xavier told him he's like, in order for us to succeed and do this and this, you know, I need you, Beast, uh, Hank, as a trusted aide to, you know, watch over this for me or, or go down this road for me. Is that maybe an angle? I don't know. Could be. I mean, this is the cool thing, right, about science fiction and being able to think about possibilities like this, that, yeah, they could do these kinds of things, and they, it's not like they haven't before. I mean, this whole Krakoan experiment is, in a way, a giant meta-commentary on humans. Uh, characters in comics never die, and there's been lots of issues with certain characters seemingly coming back, and their personalities are weird or different or off, and they play around with that a little bit with Pyro. He comes back, and he's, of course, younger, and his resurrection was a bit off, and so his his personality is off, and it's like, yeah, that's the kind of thing that could just explain why people do weird things. <laughs> um, so I, I think that that's there's there's a lot of room to play there, and um, I I am a little bit depressed of the the angle that they take Beast with, uh, the, or the angle they they show him from, but I have hopes that they can figure out a path through. Because he's only in this book primarily, right? Like he. 
his main role in this whole yeah. thing so far has been in this book here. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. I think so. I think that's right. Don't, you don't really see him a little bit here or there, but he's this is his main book. Yeah, this is his main book. One thing we haven't, we haven't talked about Kid Omega at all. I mean, and he's kind of a, a weird character, and he's come a long way from his Frank Quietly days, uh, like has everyone. Well, he, he's also unrecognizable, right? He's not the incel Milo Yiannopoulos... Um, alt-right guy that he was, this sleazy kind of creepy troll guy that he was in those issues that, that Morrison was clearly no, tapping into something. He was changed a, a long while back. I mean, he's been yeah. he's been a West Coast Avenger. He's been a lot of different things. And, I mean, the version that we see here is a pretty perfect distillation of what he's been probably in the last decade uh, in terms of the different places they've taken him his uh, camaraderie with well, or antagonistic relationship with Wolverine has been expanded they had a mini series he was part of you know Wolverine and the X-Men so this is just who that character is it's weird again if you go back and see his original version you're like whoa I much more prefer this version now with a psychic shotgun yeah, because he's horrible in those Morrison issues, and you wouldn't want him to be. On He'd be maybe a quandary like, like Sabretooth is. Like, how do you how do you live on an island with him or empath? Yeah. Instead, he's. I mean, again, he's he he's a character I enjoy reading. I enjoy reading how people will use him. Uh, I'm still not sure if I maybe have a, a great handle on exactly who he is and what what he wants, but I do feel like everything that I've read still feels like it. It, it, that is who the character is, if that makes any sense. Like, it definitely yeah, feels well, like we a know very... He's, he's, he's a cocky asshole. That's his, that's his shtick, right? <laughs> but he has this... But he's overcompensating, right? Because he's also, like, he has this uh, relationship with one of the cuckoos. And, you know, he's, like, also happy to be in love, too, right? Like, mm-hmm. he's, um, you know, has this thing on the side. And he's, like... And, and she wants to be with him, right? She's, it's not like just a, a fling. Like, she actually has feelings for him. So, you know, he has kind of one of the, the classic, you know, tough guy exterior, but really on the inside, he, he, he just wants to be a hero. He wants to be, like, he's had these, you know, weird um, future uh, state kind of uh, flashes where you see him, you know, owning the Phoenix Force is one of the most powerful yep. you know, mutants and stuff like that, right? So, you know, that's what he wants to be, but he has this kind of, um, I, I guess it's relatable from maybe, maybe a current millennial standpoint, not to go back to that, you know, where teenagers got yelled at, the multi-type uh, stereotype, but, you know, he's just that punk kid who um, is just kind of almost lashing out before he kind of finds his place in, in, in what, what the world has, has in store for him. Um, and I think, yeah, a big reason why he's on that team is the history he has with Wolverine uh, from the Christian Aaron days. Yeah. He's kind of like the taking the role of a psychic arrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a great yeah. Uh, yeah. way of putting it. And I like Marrow. Is that the right way to say it? Is it Morrow? I guess it depends if you're, like, British. Oh, I was fine Marrow. with it. Um. I like her a lot. I really liked her in the 90s. Uh, she was easily my favorite new character in a long time. Uh, sorry, maggots. Uh, my apologies. <laughs> he's back. Hence, it's okay. He's hence, back and he's hence, around. And I also got to give a shout out to Cecilia Reyes there because those yeah. are the three. Those are the three new. Mm-hmm. Can, can you survive the experience mutants in the mid late 90s? And none of them did. Yeah. Um, but Mera I really liked. And she's around, obviously. I just would love to see her in X-Force. I think that would be phenomenal. Hmm. That'd be cool. Could you imagine these pencils on uh, drawing her? Like you could, uh, you could actually see that move from Marvel vs. Capcom two, where yeah. she has these, 
these these bone spikes thrusting out of her back in this very grotesque way, you, you could totally see you know, uh, Kasaras handling that. Yeah, she would fit this book nicely. I agree. Yeah. You really would. Um, one of the first times we see Forge in this book, which is it's a beautiful page where Forge kind of has his leg up and he's he's working on something. It also just feels like if this was in the '90s, this would be the swimsuit calendar. This is this is <laughs> this is that Forge. Yes. Yes. Those weird swimsuit issues. <laughs> like that's you know it's 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 just nice to see because I feel like again Forge is one of those characters that they kind of messed with for a while. Like Ellis did some weird stuff in the ghost boxes yeah. with him. I didn't really like it, and I feel like they kind of I don't know, they didn't ruin Forge, but they definitely made him a character I didn't want to see for a while. And this feels yeah. like it's classic Forge. And then, exactly, they reset him into exactly how he should be. So he, this is the best way you remember him, and they brought him back to his roots. And it was a very smart move for them to him be just that tech guy. He's going to make all the weapons and the cool stuff. And yeah, he's yeah. Q. He's the Q of Krakoa, and it's a perfect fit for him. Yep, it is. No, absolutely. And it's also nice to see, uh, you know, again, classic kind of very old school characters. I mean, like like Gateway being used here because you know Gateway's around, and but we don't usually get to see him do much. So it's always nice to have a Gateway appearance. That's true. Sure, well, and I think it's, it's also true why they put sorry, Sherlock on Forge. They put him back in his old like nineties costume too, right? Yeah, it's kind of a way. This is how you remember Forge at his best. We're putting him back there for you. It's kind of a nice way to kind of touch on it because the character designs for the costumes, like again, a lot of these books, the only characters that seem to have a cohesive costume set is X Factor. Really, um, you know, you have Wolverine wearing his current or Cohen gear. I'm, I still have not. So, I hate that Jean's wearing her Marvel Girl costume. It's a very bizarro. You know, uh, cosplay fetish choice that they decided to use for Gene in this era so far. Um, but uh, there's no like kind of synergy between anybody. So I hopefully, as we get more X Men as heroes stuff, as Dawn of X and Reign of X roll along, I'd like to see. I, I just like the matching outfits. It's a thing for me. I think it's a, it's a cool thing for teams to have their own. But maybe that's maybe look. there's something to that, Paul. Like I mean, I I, I agree with you. I, I think it generally kind of looks cooler when everyone kind of has a sense of matching like even in the in the 90s when they're all just wearing jackets because everything else was different but at least the jackets were matching it was cool right but i think maybe there's something to this idea that maybe it's each character's kind of best self or best interpretation of themselves is the costume they end up wearing in this world like forge is wearing you know again what we as fans would say probably is the best period of forge uh maybe you know the gene character is kind of going back to her happiest moments who knows, right? But it could be sure a, point, yeah. a little bit of that, that you're seeing characters, there's this big dissonance between what they're wearing and, and, and each other, but maybe there is something to it, or maybe there isn't, and maybe we're just no-prizing it for fun. It's true. Go, go back to your favorite moments, but do it with your better costume. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's great, too, because Russell Donnerman has been doing those gorgeous covers, as we've talked about, with all the different costumes of some of these characters. Mm. And you can see there so many better ones. And, um, I mean, I, I obviously, yes, you're right, Paul. Uh, not Paul. He didn't say that. Adam said that. That this is uh, Paul's on my side. We don't, we don't want her to wear it. But, yeah, <laughs> this is clearly for a reason. This is pre-Dark um, Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And... Maybe that's supposed to be saying something. Um, she wears a more X Men bodysuit in giant size when, it does. Uh, yeah, right, and with which Dutterman designs, but she's only worn it in that one issue. Well, yeah. my, understand, my understanding of giant size is that it's a showcase for artists. So 
Hickman writes the stories, and then I imagine he talks to the artists before and says, hey, what do you want to draw? And then they say, I'd love to do this. And then he's like, okay, go for it. And then Dodderman's like, I don't like this 70s costume. Sorry, 80s costume. I guess it's late 70s, early 80s. Early 80s. Um, I'm going to do a cooler one. And then Dodderman does what he does best, and he does a redesign, and it looks better. Mm-hmm. So I guess this, what are you going to do, right? Dodderman sends you the, the pages, and you're like, well, she's not in her weird pointy ear one. So mm-hmm. Is this the only costume that's, that's so out of place that it's so dated, right? Yeah. Like, She's just she having fun. Like She's it. on the island. She just wants to, you know, show off her, her legs. And even the Wolverine, and her go-go boots. And even the Wolverine costume, which is kind of like the burn, you know, tan, mm-hmm. the, the brown, is an update of that, right? Yeah. So no one's really, except for maybe Black Tom, uh, most people are not wearing their uh, quote-unquote original outfits or costumes. No. Um, it's so, a mix because you got to make him recognizable and on, you're on the island who's that random redhead well you got to put Siren in kind of a Dantula costume so you know who she is So I do love in issue one if you look carefully when the mutants are being, assass- being killed by the human terrorists the assassins uh, if you look carefully in one of the panels Vanisher is there wearing his 60s costume and I'm like Go, you know, you do you, Vanisher. You wear that hor- horrific costume on the island. You don't have to, but if he feels comfortable doing it, then he gets to enjoy himself. Again, he's being his best self, right? Wearing his weird space pajamas. Or they kind of look, it's kind of looking like he has a ruff almost, like Queen Elizabeth I, right? It's got this big, huge ruff almost around his head, and it's kind of, it, it's definitely a weird costume. For sure. So I guess the the, the big question is uh, how many uh, how many decapitated kid Omega, kid Omega heads do you give this? Oh no! <laughs> oh, also Boom, Boomer so or Meltdown is in her like '90s X Force costume too. Yeah, she is inexplicably because then later you see her in New Mutants and she's absolutely not wearing that. She's not wearing giant shoulder pads there. That's that's sad. That's true. Um. Why did you pick that of all things to rank? I guess it's violence, so sure. Yeah. I don't why, know. Why not go with, why not go with Wolverine? How many domino skin grafts? Like, what do you oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know that I feel like we finished talking about her, although we have been talking for a while. Uh, maybe we can talk. I guess we'll talk naturally more about that for the second volume. Yeah, but I think there's – yeah, as you said, like, you know, Wolverine's obviously pushed to the, the forefront here, but this does feel like it's Domino's book, but especially more so in the second volume. Because the, the second volume, I feel, is much more about her as a character and how she really interacts with the horrific nature of what happens to her here. Like, some stuff happens to her here, but she's not really reckoning with it till next time. I, I just want to throw this down there. I really love Nina Thurman. I don't know what it is about Domino. It might be because of the, the art in the in – the- overpower trading card game for domino that i loved it might be because of just the design or i don't know what it is but of the issues i've read with her in former x stuff and whatever um i just really really like her and i'm, I'm so glad they focus as much as they do on her and, hmm. and i would say even as strong as this first volume is and we're going to rank it best of it right now i think i might even like this volume more because it's more focused on her hmm. anyway anyway uh if i were to rank it uh, nine nine okay paul Nine, eh? Yeah, I can probably, I would probably agree with that that assessment. There's, there's very little here that I didn't. I decided to be angry about the means to an end for the Xavier at the beginning. Um, taking that away from it, everything else here was really solid. Um, you know, the kind uh, of really fall in the in the middle of that. Can, if you can hold on for a second, sure. if I can help you bump up maybe your appreciation of that first issue with a thought. Um, 
I'm going to make a connection to Heraclix here. So in, in the game of Heraclix, uh, there's a Krakoan revival trait. There's a feature in the game that excerpt X-Men on the Krakoan Council can revive and bring back KO characters on their first click right back into the game. And you're, the opponent's like, well, wait a minute there. You're just able to bring back dead X-Men whenever you want. Isn't that game-breaking? Isn't that going to destroy everything? And this, of course, is metatextual. I'm getting somewhere here. There is a downside. Um, your opponent still gets the points, the, the, the victory points, as, as, as it were, um, or for KOing that character. But also, the other downside is you generate, the, the, your opponent generates a, a figure on the map as well. So you bring back an X-Men character, but... They bring in a human supremacist. They bring in the Clan Akaba. They bring in a uh, Phobos-armored Russian soldier. They bring in a skinless assassin. Every and so, yeah, yeah, basically. Like, every Korn Wildebeest. Basically, what, yeah, I mean, basically the skinless assassins to me are like the Reavers, right? They're, they're, yes. Yeah. So, and, and these, these additional characters that get generated, that spawn in every time you bring back a mutant, can really stack up against They can get out of control. And they can. I, I've done it before. Like the first game I played, I was like, "Oh, I'm going to resurrect every single time I get." And there's no, there's no end to it. You can keep doing it. And my opponent just kept stacking human, human soldiers and, and skinless assassins on the board and focus armors, and just started one shotting the rest of my team. And I'm like, "This is out of hand because I'm losing points." So there's this really interesting game balance there that suggests, and this is how it connects to the book. I, I see it as. Uh, in politics, there is, of course, a study of – which is the study of power, that there – as people militarize – this is one of the causes of World War One uh, that, that as different countries are militarizing and increasing their strength, it called to action other countries to build their armies. Hmm. That's what militarism does. And so fear of Krakoans and fear of the mutant machine, as it were, whatever this human civil, – this mutant civilization is, is terrifying to humans, and they've reacted to it. And every time the mutants raise the stakes, the humans are going to raise their stakes also. Every time that Xavier is known to have been killed and inexplicably he's back, it's going to cause the humans to do new and more rash things. So one of the consequences to it, I, I, you could argue, is that it isn't that there's no consequence, right? That there is a larger kind of almost global geopolitical consequence that they're they're risking because for a while here they're trying not to let humans know that there is such a thing as resurrection right that some people were like why are these mutants appearing all of a sudden that we thought were dead oh it must have just been they went into hiding and now they've come out of hiding to join this new nation but they that's one of their their trump cards as it were that they don't want everyone to know that they can play and so every time they have to use this mechanism this Krakoan revival it makes things a little bit worse for Krakoa. So my hope is that there is no there's no situation where there's no cost. Everything comes with a cost, and maybe that will gain give you some greater appreciation of <laughs> the issue one. Maybe no, no. Again, I don't I don't mind the attack on Krakoa. It makes sense, and it's just the whole it's taking Xavier off the board. You could have gone and, and and wiped out half the island and all kinds of crazy stuff. Because um, for me. Again, this is more for me at the time of reading it. You just got through Hawks and Pox, so you just set all these ground rules, all these graphs. I read everything in great detail, and you know, this is this is one of the first five issues that six issues that came out after that. And right off the hop, boom, you, you took one of the most major factors for this whole resurrection thing, and you know, 
we're going to deal with this now, you know, and I think I think you could have shot that bullet just not, not so soon, you know, I think there's a lot more, like in hindsight and looking at a bigger picture, now we've gone a year plus into this, however long it's been, um, yes, it all makes more sense in retrospect, right, I'm, I'm just speaking more of like past Paul goes, oh my god, um, so I still say, yeah. but again, everything else is still very much on point, so I, I will, I will match your square of a nine for the, uh, for the book, for sure. Your, and, and your points are all well taken. I can't really argue with those. I just wanted to talk about Heroclix. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, uh, I, I do think it's super sense, enjoyable. Though. It's great. Okay, good. <laughs> Uh, I think I have to agree with you guys. I, I would go with a nine as well. I, as I said, like rereading it for the podcast, unlike Excalibur, which felt like a chore, this felt like a pleasure. This felt like, oh man, this is this is really good stuff. Um, it's not stuff I can like let my son read, but it's still very oh. enjoyable. Yeah, it's you interesting. I was looking for uh, some synopsis. Like I usually try and find a quick, you know, like um, low level synopsis to quickly just remind myself a few points. Um, before I reread and uh, I couldn't find one for some reason so I stumbled upon this one kind of weird like message board or something and uh, people were ripping this book apart and I was going through reading through some of the comments and like, these people were just so I, I should uh, I should took some notes but it was surprising how people didn't think this was um, something new or fresh and made no sense it's a stupid uber violent book and blah 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 and they also uh, you know Slag the resurrection protocols, removing stakes, and stuff like that. So it's kind of interesting to see that um, the, there was a lot of negative press on this book for some reason, where most people seem to think it's uh, one of the more top tier books. Interesting. I can I can definitely see if you're the kind of person that doesn't like a lot of violence generally. I could definitely see you wanting to steer away. I could also see somebody who has no problem with violence in other texts, but they don't want that in their X Men comics. So I can appreciate that, too, from that perspective. But this isn't the X-Men book anyway, right? So this is absolutely its own thing. And it's been, as Adam kind of introduced it as the show started, it's kind of been when X-Force has been been for a number of years now. So I don't know why you, you would be surprised, but I guess it's I guess anything's possible. Anyone's Although, touching on this idea that you can't read this with your kids, why don't you just do what teachers have done in our childhood, which is you get the overhead out, and they get the transparency, and they put a piece of paper on that transparency, and they slowly move down the, the piece of paper so you can all copy the notes. You could just take a piece of paper, guys, and put it over the panels you don't want your kids to see, and then read it with them. And they're like, well, why can't we see pages 7 through 19? You're like, well, the, they, they didn't make those. Uh, they, they didn't put any ink on them. It's only a three-page comic because there's so much violence. <laughs> I can't show you any of this. You, or know, you can show the pages where it's half dog, those faces intact, and the other half is missing an eye and skin. Just don't show that half. I got you covered. That's awesome. I, uh... My my son has been again. We, we're we're going through X Men, but we're also reading some Flash now. And I was reading some Flash by Jeff Johns, and I was surprised. But there was violence that I just forgot was there. Like there was like a whole issue about Captain Cold, and I forgot that he's he's a murderer. Apparently, I'm like, holy shit! I forgot about that. I thought he was just like a a thug who you know robbed banks and froze things. And I forgot that no no he also kills people. Uh, so I had to you know kind of oh we're not going to read this issue. Let's let's move on. You didn't even preview your, the comic you were going to share with them. I'd love it. That's Here's great. the thing: like I had read it already. I'd read it before, but I was younger, and I, I, I just I was less sensitive to some of the stuff because, and I think we are in general a little less sensitive because we're not 
thinking that we're going to have to have much younger, impressionable eyes read it. And, uh, and you know, it, it's it's interesting. And a lot of things they can handle. And, like, I think about, like, the other day I was thinking about, you know, when can I let my son watch the Michael Keaton Batman movies? And I'm like, I don't know. Because, like, I watched it when I was, like, seven. But also, I probably shouldn't have. Yeah, maybe. I guess it really depends on the child. But I do love, like, I'd love to, the idea that movies are its own thing and books are their own thing and comics are this beautiful thing that exists between film and prose. And that's, it's just a beautiful thing and, and it can do things those two different genres can't or, or medias can't do. Mm-hmm. And this idea that, like, you're watching a film with your kid that you appreciated as a kid, like, oh, man, you're my kid's 12 now, I think they can watch Terminator. And maybe you're the kind of parent that doesn't, want to watch uh, nude sex scenes with your kid and you're like well it's just going to be people being shot and some you know some play violence oh man there's that scene where Sarah Connor has sex with Reese oh man and you fumble for the remote you're trying to like right there's that kind of thing and then that would never happen with a book right you're, you're not reading Lewis Carroll's you know, uh, through the looking glass and all of a sudden stumble upon a moment and you just find yourself reading through an uncomfortable moment and you can't stop yourself and just keep reading it to your kid and they're too young for it, that wouldn't happen. You just kind of stop reading and your kid Mm. goes, wait, what was that? And you go, oh, nothing, you turn the page. Comics, right, there's that interesting thing where you flip the page and you don't know what, and you're like, oh, there's Captain Cold gunning a guy. (laughs) (laughs) So you you have this big controlled media that is all all but one controllable and uncontrollable as well visual it is I just never thought about that I don't have kids I just I never thought about it that that's the closest equivalent you can get to accidentally stumbling into an inappropriate scene in a movie and fumbling for the control like, your, kid, your kid's already seen the page they've already seen yeah no it's true like I was there's a really cool like one of my favorite issues of the Flash is this really cool storyline with when they created this new version of Zoom and then I, I, I had forgotten hold on I had forgotten that some of the stuff was extremely inappropriate. And, like, there's, like, basically one character creates a miscarriage that the other character has. And I'm like, oh, my God, I forgot about this. How do I explain this to a child? Yeah. Yeah, that would definitely be something that you're like, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. So it's... that's this whole comic. Don't, don't, yeah, don't show this to your kids. I'm, of course, joking. Or whatever you want to do. Live your own life. I don't care. <laughs> that's, that's so nice of you, Nate. <laughs> Who am I to tell parents how to parent? I have no one to tell anyone that. You gotta get. You gotta. You gotta. We gotta end. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like the bell ringing. That's like saying that's, we're done. That's, that's me calling you to saying that we're ending. That's about it. <laughs> it, it. It is an interesting thought, though. Again, I, I I always do think about this about you know when certain comics can be shown to children. And, you know, like, when I was a kid, like, it's it's, it's so fascinating because, like, I grew up and I was, like, nine years old reading Maximum Carnage, which is all about violence. But at the same time, it wasn't the type of violence we see now. Like, it was it was vague enough that I wasn't thinking about how probably, like, hundreds of people were murdered. But <laughs> I never thought of it that way because the comics code reined them in to a certain degree. But whereas if you had that same comic now, everyone's fucking dead. It's, it, it is a pretty, I mean, looking back even at it, again, I've talked to you two about this before, of like throwing Lisa, I still remember this scene, it traumatized me, through a marble wall and all Bagley has drawn is her spattered body that you can only see like lower half and the splatter mark, like that really traumatized me as a kid. So um, I, w- I still remember this to this day. So I would say, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, maybe... 
Maybe maybe preview the comics first before you show them to your kid, Adam. I'm yeah, like, I, I should I, I I should be better at that. I just you know had a memory and I thought the memory was okay and apparently it wasn't. Um, anyways, thanks both of you for uh, for joining us again to talk about uh, X Force this time. I don't know what we're talking about next time. It will not be as exciting as this one, I don't think, because uh, this was again for me the highlight of Dawn of X. Um, anyways, again, thank you to both of you. Uh, if you want to, if you're listening out there and you want to send us an email, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. You can rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again, and uh, thanks a lot, guys. Thank you.